If you have your Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 3. We're taking a look at that first church and how Jesus worked through them mightily by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're somewhat audaciously taking all of chapter 3 as our text for today. Sorry about that. So Acts 3, 1 to 26 will be our text. We looked last week at a model church from Acts 2, 42 to 47. It's mentioned there that the apostles, signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And here is an example of one from Acts 3. So if you read along silently as I read aloud, let us humble ourselves before the word of the Lord. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. 
You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you are at work here in the book of Acts and at work even in our world today. We ask that you would help us to see what you want us to see from this text and that we wouldn't just learn something if there's some new fact for us to learn that we can file away and say, now we know that thing, but that we would know you, that we would know your heart, that we would know your plan, that we would stand in awe of who you are and what you have done for us through Jesus and what you are doing even now in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so would you change us into the people that you want us to be so that we would be ready to go out on mission for you this week. Would you be with us now? Would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would we be ready to repent and to obey, to cast ourselves on Christ again? In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea this morning from Acts 3 is this. In the face of sin and suffering, we must seek to serve people in word and deed, in Jesus' name, and with Jesus' gospel. In the face of sin and suffering, we must seek to serve people in word and deed, in Jesus' name, and with Jesus' gospel. So in this story, it's one with which we are familiar, one that our three- to five-year-olds heard uh, a few weeks ago, as they're a little bit ahead of us in Acts. They're going a little faster than we are in Acts as well. And they heard about the man who was lame from birth, and then by the end of the story is walking and leaping and praising God. And there's, I love the way the King James puts it when Peter talks with him, gold and silver have I none, but what I have give I thee. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. It's like, yes, we don't have anything to offer but Jesus. And that is the heart of this story. That's what we have to offer. And maybe you can't walk up to someone and go, be healed, walk, and it's just going to change, and it's just going to happen. But we still have the same thing to offer. Not ourselves, not our skills, but our Savior. So what's happening in this story? Well, Peter and John are going up to the temple, as was the custom of the people who were gathering as God's church. They're going up, it says, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon. So they're on their way in. And there's a guy there whose friends have laid him by a particular gate, the beautiful gate, which there's some debate about which one it is, and that's not super important for our story. But for these first readers of Acts, they go, oh, I know that one. And there's a guy that's been placed there because lots of people go by. It's kind of like how people stake out a certain intersection on the boulevard. Right? You have the same person at the same intersection. They'll work that intersection for years sometimes. And then they'll move up one because someone vacated that one and it's a little bit better. And you'll, it's like, wait, weren't you at this other one? 
And that's just kind of how it rolls. If you drive, I used, so I actually don't know a whole lot now because I don't get to the boulevard a whole lot, but I used to drive basically from Welsh down to where it dumped into the Schuylkill for work um, every day back the first seven years we were here working in Balakinwood. And you would see, it's like, okay, there's that, that lady has that one, that guy has that one. You guys understand, right? So it's basically like this guy, thank you, this guy has his spot. He has his intersection, except it's even better than a spot on the boulevard. I mean, people take the spots on the boulevard because there are a lot of people who drive on the boulevard, and there are a lot of people who go into the temple. But he has the added bonus of, like, they're going in to worship God, right? And are you going to walk right by? Like, if there was someone on our front steps today, obviously in need, and we're all like, Right? It's like, you, you, you can't do that. There's like, you've got to get something. So that's even better than being posted on the boulevard. But it's interesting as you get into it, he sees Peter and John. He asks them, right, can I have some money? I need some help. Can you be generous to me? And they do the thing that you only do if you're going to help someone. And you all know what I mean because you've driven around here. If you're going to just pass by the person at that intersection on the boulevard, what's the key? Don't make eye contact. Right? It's like, normally I would just sit straight, but if the person's here, it's like, whoa, that's super interesting, that medical office building on my right. I never knew that it was there. Let me inspect every inch of it, right? Anybody done that before? That's how it works. You don't make eye contact because if you make eye contact, it means you might care and you might help. And so in this moment, Peter and John, the text tells us explicitly, make eye contact. And even more than that, look at verse 4. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. The guys already asked them for help, and he's like, okay, we are locked in here. Look at us. And then he says words that must have been so disappointing. I don't have any money. Right? Could you imagine that? You stop so it's the first thing on the boulevard is making eye contact or getting onto the boulevard because some people do, like, like at Welsh, you'll have people walking down there, is if you make eye contact, then the next real sign is rolling down the window, right? Because that's like, you come, I have something for you. And if they roll down the window and then you're like, you know what, I don't actually have any money today, what kind of reaction are you going to get? In that moment, right? So I just wanted to talk. You know, I figured you were here. I'm here. Let's talk, right? That's not what he's there for. He doesn't want to talk to you. He wants to get something from you. And that's what this lame beggar wants as well. So Peter says, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you. The guy doesn't know it yet, but what he's going to get is a lot better than a couple of coins, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the right hand, verse 7, and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This is 
a miracle. This is what the New Testament often calls a sign. We see lots of them in John, but it'll be talked about even later here in Acts. No one can deny that a great sign has been done. The man's asking for money, and instead he gets something much better. And we learn that he didn't just get something that's much better in being able to, to walk around and jump now, even though he had never been able to do it before. Being healed by Jesus in this instance, it's also made clear that this man is saved. It's through Jesus' name, by faith in his name, that this man stands before you well. But what does he do? He walks and leaps, and he is praising God. He's no longer relegated to the edge of the temple to get some money from people so he can survive. He joins them. He goes into the temple with them to praise the Lord. Now the name of Jesus, and Eric talked about this in the opening. What does it mean to be doing something in his name? Because there are sometimes we can think about this almost like a magic word. If I just say Jesus a lot, then good things will happen. And it is good to say his name. So if you say his I'm not trying to stop you from doing that, right? But we learn from later in Acts, the seven sons of Sceva. Remember that story? There's a demon-possessed man. And they say, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And what does the demon say to them? I know Jesus. I know Paul. I have no idea who you are. And the man attacks them. And they run off naked and wounded. Embarrassed. And they used Jesus' name. Right? So Jesus' name is not just a magic word to be said. Because what was wrong with them? They were like, yeah, okay, I know this name works. Right? Jesus' name is not an incantation. We don't just sprinkle something and say Jesus, and then everything is better, right? Because they said, you know, in, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, is like, well, we've heard Paul say this, and it works. So like, can it work like that for us? But it was separate from faith in Jesus. It was separate from understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. They just wanted in that moment to work a miracle, cast a demon out. We want to try this. We want to be people who do that sort of thing. That's not what Jesus is after. He doesn't want a church who's just interested in being able to do powerful things for their own sake or for their own glory or their own acclaim or even simply for the good of the other person. He wants a church who will do things in his name and with his gospel. When we're saying we're doing something in the name of Jesus, we should tremble. Because we are saying in that moment, we are doing something on his behalf. We say we're doing this in his name. It's kind of like the old, you know, almost a joke of like, stop in the name of the law, right? What does that mean? It means on the authority of the law, stop. It doesn't invest the person who says the word with any authority or power. And it doesn't actually make anyone stop. The point is there's something higher that I'm appealing to that means something. 
And that's what we're talking about with Jesus. We are doing things, when we're seeking to do things in his name, we're doing things on his behalf, by his power, on his authority. And so one caution for us, even before we get into the outline at all, and you're like, oh, great, um, is we need to be careful when we say things in Jesus' name, especially if we're saying about what someone else should do. We better make sure that it's grounded right here. So I'm going to say, well, in Jesus' name, I think, it's like, nope, cut that one off. When we speak in his name, we are speaking on his behalf. We are speaking with his authority. And we should take care to speak his words with his authority. Speaking in his name is speaking based on who he is and what he has accomplished. And so, as we look at this, I want to take three points, because sermons have to have three points, even though not all, not all of mine do. But in the face of sin and suffering, the big idea was this. We must seek to serve people in word and deed in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel. So some takeaways as we're considering this whole chapter. One, sinners can be saved. Sinners can be saved. And this is actually what's most needed, right? He thinks he needs money, he gets a healing, but he gets way more than healing. He said often the New Testament calls miracles signs. And sometimes we can think, well, that's just another word for miracle that means the same thing. It's when something pretty crazy outside of what we perceive as the natural order happens. But miracles tended to serve as authenticating signs of Jesus' ministry. You think of in John. You know, and John is clear, you know, this is the first sign. This was the second sign. What was the point for his disciples to see and to glorify him, to believe that he is who he says he is? So miracles tended to be called signs, and they served as just that. Signs saying, this is who he is. He's not just who you think by observing him on the outside and even seeing what he does They're pointers to who he is and what he will accomplish. And here, this miracle functions similarly as an authenticating sign of Jesus' ministry continued through the apostles. Jesus does the miracle, right? He stands well through Jesus because of Jesus. Jesus does the miracle through his apostles as an authenticating sign to attract people's attention to the good news about him, who he is, and what he has accomplished for us, that we who deserve God's wrath can have life both now and forever, only through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Sinners can be saved. And that is the heart of the sermon that Peter preaches. So they do this sign. And it's pretty impressive, right? If we had a guy who could, who could not walk, had never walked in his life, and was out front, and he was healed, and now we're having our first dancing down the aisles moment during the singing by someone above the age of about six years old. We go, what's going on? It's like, wait, that's the guy. And that's what they're doing. The people are like, that's him. I know him. I know him. And he, he can't do that. And he's doing that. What is going on? And it's a sign. 
And Peter recognizes that that's how the Lord wants to use it and immediately jumps into a sermon. People are running together. They're astonished. And he's like, guys, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Now, it is pretty amazing, and I'm sure Peter himself was in, in awe of some of the things that Jesus did. But what's his point? It's not, it's not what we did. He says it's not by our power, and it's not by our piety, right? It's not power we have in ourselves. It's not our holiness or devotion to God that puts us in this spot where we can do this sort of thing. It's not by those that we have made him walk. It's God. God has glorified, verse 13, his servant, Jesus. Then we're saying sinners can be saved because that is a really big emphasis here. We had that a little bit in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 where it's like you delivered him over. And here, there's like four of them, right? It's like you, you, you. You delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. Verse 14, you denied the Holy and Righteous One. Verse 15, you killed the author, the source of life. You did this. You are guilty. Now, he doesn't mean that the Jews were exclusively guilty. Pilate is certainly guilty. Pilate didn't do it right. He did not work for justice. He knew what was justice and intentionally went against it to placate the people. So it's not that like, you guys did it and you are the only guilty ones and this is what we need to focus on. But those are the people he's talking to that day. I'm sure if Pilate had been there, he would have told him that he was guilty. And the point is, they were guilty. And it's not just them, right? It's us. We are guilty. If we had been there, we have no guarantee that we would have done anything different than anyone else in that crowd. And there are ways that we, even as his people, have been afraid to speak up when it's hard. How much more do we think it would be when he's there on trial and about to die? We all have sinned, Romans 3 tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. And so his point in bringing it up isn't just to say, you guys are the bad guys, everyone remember the Jews are the bad guys. That is not Peter's point. In fact, we can see that from what he says, verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He's saying, I know you didn't understand. You did what was wrong. You should not have done it, but you didn't understand, and there is an opportunity to repent. It says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. God fulfilled his promises that the Christ would suffer for the salvation of his people. And he did it through really bad choices, really sinful choices made by a lot of people. He fulfilled his word and the Messiah, Jesus, suffered. And so what's the solution? Verse 19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Sinners, even sinners who were actively involved in crucifying Christ, can be 
saved. That is really good news because even though we weren't there, even though our voices weren't part of the crowd saying crucify him, we have rejected him many times in our hearts. We have betrayed him by our words and our actions. We have been afraid to speak his name when it was exactly the thing that needed spoken. We have been afraid because of what we thought we might lose in different social situations. And that good news is for us. That we who deserve God's wrath have been made right with God through Jesus, through his suffering. That he died in our place, taking all our sins on him. So we could share in his life both now and forever through faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Sinners can be saved even now, but it's also for forever. So sinners can be saved. That's what's most needed. And creation will be restored. So sinners can be saved, and creation will be restored. And this is really good news. This is part of the good news about Jesus. That yes, he came, lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live, but haven't died on the cross in our place, rose from the dead. And that rising from the dead guarantees life both now and forever for everyone who hopes in him. And the story of who Jesus is and what he does continues, right? He now has ascended to his father, as Peter mentioned in the sermon. Heaven had to receive him for now. He's ascended to his father where he's ruling even now. But one day he will come again to make every wrong right, to restore all things, to rescue his people. And we will be with him and all his people forever and ever and ever. With no more sickness, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. Creation will be restored. And that's why this sign is so important. Peter puts this in his sermon because he's talking about what has just happened. Now, we tend to think of a situation where someone is lame from birth as something that went wrong. Right? Most people here today, you walked in. And you're planning to walk home. And it's the odd situation. It's the abnormal situation. It's the sad situation when someone is lame from birth. That's the anomaly, right? But it's amazing. I was talking with Claire this week. She said it's amazing that any of us are healthy at all because of all the things that can go wrong in our bodies. It's an absolute miracle that we can lead healthy lives, which speaks to God's amazing design, but also recognizes we live in a fallen world because of sin. So now, because we're in a fallen world, it's actually normal now that things go wrong. It's normal that cells do the wrong thing and become things they're not supposed to be. 
It's normal that things weaken and break and we struggle. We are so fragile and we tend not to think about it because we're so beautifully designed and most of the time things are working well for most of us. But even that is a mercy from God. So there's the beauty of God's design, but the reality of living in a fallen world. And this man's lameness shouted loudly that reality, that we live in a fallen world. It makes us think of the man who was born blind in John 9, and the disciples are going, well, who sinned? This man or his parents? It's like, guys, that's not the point. That's not why this is going this way. Our physical problems, sure, sometimes they are related to things we have done to ourselves, but it's not, oh, I, something, something's going wrong. What is the sin that I have in my life? It's not a one-to-one. Things go wrong. We live in a fallen world with broken bodies, and if you're still young and like, I don't understand what that feels like, just wait a minute and talk to those of us who are beginning to have some gray on us, and then talk to some of the other ones who have a little more gray than I do, and we'll, we'll fill you in, right? <laughs> we'll let you know. But this sign is not just a trick to preach the gospel. It is a foretaste of the future in the present. Because one day, there won't be anyone who's lame anymore. There won't be anyone who's blind anymore. There won't be anyone who's deaf anymore. It will all be fixed. It will all be restored. Because the gospel is for body and soul. It's for both. Now, this is not a health and wealth like everything's going to be great in this life. I think those of us in this room who are most familiar with that the teaching that the gospel is for body and the soul and would celebrate it the most, it's not because their bodies are doing great. It's because they have hope of the body that will be restored and raised one day and that the pain and the suffering that you've gone through is not the end of your story. The weakness that you feel now is not the end. The end is being with him perfectly restored. With no more sickness, no more infections, no more weakness, no more pain. And so we're not a health and wealth like, okay, so now if the gospel's for body and soul, like everyone should experience healing all the time. Even in Acts, we see that. We see that not everyone is healed. Not everything works out well. And you think of 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul, who healed people, who raised people from the dead, prays three times that the Lord would remove this thorn in the flesh, a physical ailment that was painful for him, that he felt like interfered with his ministry. I can be better who you have called me to be, Lord, if you would change this. And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so there are sometimes the Lord gives healing. And so we continue to pray for healing and ask him for it, for those who need it, according to God's word. But we do not ask presumptuously. If the Apostle Paul could ask, Lord, remove this, and the Lord said no. Right? <laughs> it's like, but Lord, you didn't, and I deserve. It's like, eh, 
wait, what do I deserve again? But sometimes he loves to give us that foretaste of the very good future that's coming. And so we continue to pray in faith, asking God to heal. He's not done healing in this age, but there are some times, many times, that he says, it's not healing this time. My grace is sufficient for you. It is enough. And Paul goes on to say, I'm then going to boast in my weaknesses because it's when I'm weak that he is strong. So while Paul's thinking like, it'd be better if I didn't have this problem for my ministry, the Lord says, your weakness that makes you depend on me is more valuable to me and more valuable for your ministry than if you were fully healthy. Now that's hard. I'd much prefer being fully healthy. But the Lord is aiming at our fruitfulness until the day when we are fully restored. So it doesn't mean we'll always receive healing in this life. We still live in a fallen world, but one day this world won't be fallen anymore. And that's what Peter's getting at in verse 21 when he speaks of the restoration of all the things which God, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he goes back to Deuteronomy. That's where he's quoting from in verse 22. He says, Moses said, or in Deuteronomy, Moses says, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me, and you better listen to him. The sign itself actually gives us a hint as to another place to find a prediction of the prophets of this time. Isaiah 35 is a chapter that is speaking about the time when things will be changed, that deserts will become a plain and dried riverbeds will become springs, and when God's people will enter his house and sing his praise and in the middle in verses 5 and 6, it says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So what's this sign? It's not just really neat for this guy, though it is. This is a sign that someone who knows their Old Testament, that for these Jews who know their Bible, it's like, what's going to happen when things are beginning to be restored? What's going to happen when we're supposed to go into God's house and sing his praise? The lame will leap like a deer. And what is this guy doing? Walking and leaping, and praising God. And Peter's essentially saying in this sermon, you have seen one man restored today. One day, all things will be restored. This miracle is a sign of the beginning of the restoration of all things that will be completed when Jesus comes again. And so what do we do? as God's people. Well, of course, we come to him for salvation. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, this can be the day where you, as a sinner who deserve God's wrath, become God's child. And it happens through faith in the name of Jesus. He didn't cast out the people who crucified him. He will not cast you out. He gave his life for you, and you can be saved through faith in his name even today. And we can look forward to a creation that will be restored. And that can help us as we struggle and as we suffer now to remember the gospel truth 
that Jesus saves us and we belong to him body and soul in life and in death now and forever. But as we think about how this should impact any kind of ministry that we do, we give what we have. Sinners can be saved, creation will be restored, and we give what we have. This is what Peter does in this text, right? We go back to those first few verses. It's like, I don't have any money, but I'm going to give you what I have. When he says, I don't have any money, the guy's probably thinking this isn't getting off to a great start, right? He says, I'll give you what I have, and what he had was Jesus. And this is our pattern for ministry. I don't have much. I may not have exactly what you even think you need today, but I'll give you what I have. This passage and others point us to word and deed ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's not about us. It's not Grace City Church is a church that does these sorts of things. Peter and John are the guys who do this stuff, right? They don't proclaiming their own power or goodness. Verse 12 tells us it's the exact opposite of that, right? It's not our power. It's not our piety. It's through Jesus. So signs like these were not about showing off. It's like, look what we can do. Ooh, I guess I'll, guess I'll help that person. It's about meeting a real need in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel. When Jesus healed in the gospels, when the apostles heal in Acts, it's never just healing. It's a restoration of the whole person to their relationship with God. We're to do good with both word and deed. We need to hold them together in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel. It's why so many hospitals, both here and around the world, have been founded by Christians. It's why so many are, even still have names in the, like, every other hospital down south is Baptist something or other. <laughs> it's like, why, why are they all named that? It's like, well, those were the people who started it because they understood texts like these. That's why some of you will remember Boy, it was wow, years ago. 2015, we had Tom and Melissa Kendall come here for a Sunday when we were over at Lincoln. And they talked about their ministry that they were going to, that now they've been at for years over in Togo, where Tom was a military surgeon, really good one, could have had a great career, but even his whole reason for going into that was to be able to go to Togo, West Africa, and be able to be the surgeon at a hospital across the world, where they would not have access to the life-saving care that he could provide. And so he and his wife and their multiplicity of children moved across the world because of texts like these. It's a word and deed, and he's there, by God's grace, healing body and soul. And there is a freedom there to be able to, after providing the care, say, here's why we're doing this. Here's why we're here. Here's what you need to know. Yes, I'm glad I could do this to save your life today, but this is what you need. You need the good news about Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again. In Jesus, both body and soul 
will be restored. And so we must seek to serve people in word and deed, in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel. James, in his letter, is speaking in chapter 2 about the relationship of faith and works. That how can we say, I believe in Jesus, but there's nothing in our lives that show it. And one particular area that he kind of picks on in James 2.15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He says, here's how this goes. If we believe that Jesus came to save us body and soul, when we see one of our brothers in need, we don't simply say, I will pray for you. Yes, pray and come alongside with the resources that you have. Give what we have. And it will cost us. It will cost us. It might cost us money. Peter didn't have any, but I... I think some of us at least have some. It might cost us money. It might cost us reputation. In the short run here in Acts, it cost Peter and John their freedom. Shortly after this, and in direct response to it, they're thrown into jail. And the Holy Spirit gets them out, and they go and preach again. And it's like, what are these guys doing, right? And we'll get to that in chapters 4 and 5, which are great. But it cost them something. We, we can tend to look at a story like, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this amazing? And it is. It's beautiful and amazing. And it cost the people who did the ministry. It cost Peter and John to heal this lame man and to preach that good news about Jesus. But it's even deeper than that. What does Peter mention here in this sermon? That it's through those people denying and denouncing and delivering over that the Christ would suffer. It cost Jesus for us to be his. He took the death that we deserve to die. He took the punishment that we deserve to experience forever and ever. He took it all. He took our sins Peter will write later in his life, in his own body on the tree. And he did it to save us, and he did it to provide a pattern of ministry for us. That life on this earth is not just like, oh, I've, I've learned more of my Bible, fellowship is sweeter, everything is great. We are not on a trajectory just up, up, up to glory. We will still face suffering here and where we can, we are called to alleviate suffering in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel, and it will cost us. And we won't know the cost ahead of time. Sure, if you say, I'm going to give someone $100, you know that. But we won't always know the cost. But as we prepare to face it, we remember our Savior who endured the ultimate cost so that we could belong to him both now and forever. In the face of sin and suffering, we must seek to serve people in word and deed, in Jesus' name and with Jesus' gospel. 
we give people what we have, Jesus, in word and deed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave us what you had, your one and only Son. And we thank you for the salvation that we have through him. We ask that you would help us to embrace that salvation by faith, to live in the good of all your promises, even as we face difficulty and suffering here. Would you help us to, trusting Jesus, look forward to the day when he will come again and restore all things. Help us to live by faith in that day. And while we wait, would you help us to be like him? Would you help us to be like Peter and John here? Would you help us trusting you, not looking for our own power or depending on our own holiness, but through Jesus, would you help us to see needs and meet them? And would you help us to be faithful when you give opportunity to speak up and say, this isn't because we're good. It's because Jesus has saved us by his grace and you can get in on that too. Would you help us to be that kind of church? Your people on mission for your glory while we wait for Jesus to come again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.